Hi everyone and welcome to the Leaders of Babies podcast today. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus. With this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship, I want to give you access to inspiration and that practical support so you can continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young child or young children. You can take today the first step to join a network of like-minded fellows from all sectors by registering interest on www.leadersplus.org.uk forward slash the register interest. Application to our fellowship will open soon and you will get a senior leader mentor, access to thought leadership about what works for parents and careers and most importantly, space to think in a structured environment. Today's conversation is an interview with the wonderful and unbelievably knowledgeable Dr. Maya Koritza. For a living, she researches how chief execs, boards and senior leaders really behave and how they make decisions. I don't know if you would be surprised, but I, I learned that usually they're not actually making the key decisions in the official meetings or through the official channels. So she shared with me her insights about managing workplace politics well, whilst trying to keep your integrity and also just how to get the senior leaders to listen to you and value you as someone who has a lot to contribute. I learned a huge amount from my conversation with Maya. I hope you do too. So very warm welcome Maya. I'm so delighted to have you as our guest of the podcast today. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself and your family? Thank you very much. My name is Dr. Maya Koritza, and I am an associate professor at Work Business School. I predominantly teach executive management and leadership, how that works in practice, and what we call organizational dynamics. So really, organizations is almost social systems in which you have things like interests and power and different understandings and different structures and priorities. And so what some of my colleagues see as the messiness of organizations, that's my daily bread and butter. I'm interested in that. And I'm also very fascinated by the kind of consequences of organizational choices and what happens there. So that's my primary job. I spent a lot of my time researching around those topics, around executive boards, around management at the very top. And then also try to have sort of public engagements around some of these topics as well, including career progression that we'll talk about today. And in terms of my family, I am currently seven and a half months pregnant and I am married to a French man. There you go. Well, congratulations on both fronts. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and how funny that when I set up this interview, I had no idea that you were expecting a baby, but it becomes even more, even more timely now. Can I ask, knowing everything that you know about careers, women and how senior leadership works, what went through your head when you found out you were pregnant? <laughs> this is the bit where I admit to be a very, very bad follower of my own advice. No, I should say we'll talk a lot about what research says. And obviously, I wish I could say I took all of that into account. But as it happens, the first time I did get pregnant, which is not this pregnancy, which was two, two and a half years ago, I didn't think of any of that. I had just gotten married. It was within weeks. We had obviously had conversations about it. And it just sort of occurred. And it was natural and to me that it would and that we would try. And it very quickly happened. And then unfortunately, very quickly sort of went away. I'm sorry. 
Thank you. So I have to admit that I was very, in some ways, uh, perhaps naive the first time around, in the sense that it just felt like something we wanted to do for ourselves. And I didn't really think too much about the consequences at that time. So it's a good end. But the reason why I mention it is I think, you know, there's, there is so much stigma and there is so much. And a part of that comes from people's awkwardness around it. Part of it comes from this idea that who we are at work is professional and professional is never the personal even though at the same time now we're also supposed to be authentic whatever that means oh yeah uh, please <laughs> a polished authentic version of yourself of course right the, the correct mm-hmm. one but i think you know i think for me it's a really important part of it because for me it has been transformational to how i see myself to the issues i talk about why i want to talk about them and in particular to this kind of idea of being very realistic about the choices and the consequences, but not necessarily of personal choices, but also of the structural ways in which we're encouraged, for instance, not to talk about some things or to keep pushing ourselves and thinking that if only we work harder, Mm. uh, for instance. Interesting. And if you think about you and your work, it sounds like you've been working extremely hard and continue to do so. You're obviously incredibly passionate about your career. What do you think, if anything, will you do to evolve the way that you work? You mean going forward yes. after after Shrimp is here? I think it, this is an interesting question because I already have a plan. And I think it's important. It's very important, first of all, to acknowledge that these choices are deeply personal. So what works for me may not work for everybody else. I'm also an academic with a very, I'm a relatively senior and privileged academic And so that in and of itself confers different privileges and choices as well. I work for a very good employer as well. So just to give you, for instance, a context, I have a plan of taking three weeks off before my due date and then 17 weeks afterwards, because at Warwick, where I'm employed, we have 20 weeks fully paid maternity leave. And then after that, you have a variety of options up to a year. What's also important is that my employer at the same time has a returners fellowship. So once you finish, let's say your maternity, paternity leave, you then have a further six months or a year where if you are a researcher like me, you would only do research. So you wouldn't have teaching or administrative obligations. For instance, I could work from home and then also take care of my daughter if I need to. So my particular plans are to basically do the 20 weeks, to do some holidays that I have accrued, and then to do the fellowship until I can return to full teaching end of January next year. So that roughly means about 10 months in which I'm kind of switching off from a full return. That being said, something I'm hugely aware of is the importance of work to my own identity. And I think there's a sort of awkward reality out there about this idea that women should at the same time, they're penalized for being too into work, but then equally they're penalized for wanting to be full-time mothers. And so there's this idea that we should want to be both at the same time. Absolutely. That sounds like a really great start. Let's talk about what you know um, about career progression. I'm sure your official research has a more complex title, but in my mind, you are an expert in how senior leaders work Mm. and you're an expert in how people progress their careers. So what 
do you know now that mm-hmm. you didn't know before about how senior leaders make decisions in organizations about who to champion, who to help progress in their careers? So I think the construction of what do I know now that I didn't know before is kind of, in my case, not really, it uh, doesn't resonate because I think I immediately entered this field, which academically is very much challenging most of the myths out there about perfect meritocracy and about senior leaders being these sort of perfectly logical, perfectly functional, perfectly, let's say, competent at all times units where politics and social ties and coherence and quote unquote fit socially don't matter. In academia, this vision, certainly in our field, is completely dismissed. So what we know of the top of organizations in terms of executive teams, for instance, is instead that these are highly socialized environments. What I mean by that in particular is they are, first of all, what's important to know is that they're structurally detached. So by very nature of being at the very top and the kind of work that they do, the kind of issues that they deal with, a lot of the work is necessarily confidential. So it is separate from the norm of the rest of the organization. And as such, what it creates structurally, again speaking, is isolated environments. So they become basically a closed circle of people, right? And because of the nature of their work, they're also a very small circle of people. And this is what we call the inner circle. The reason why this is relevant is it creates and it stimulates basically further issues with how they end up working. And in particular, this idea of because we're a small circle, who gets into that small circle becomes a far, far more important question. So the way in this in which this translates, for instance, which is important to know and is very realistic, is that something called the similarity attraction paradigm kicks in often, which is simple. It's basically, we call it, I call it me, me and more me. So because you're at the top, because this is a closed circle, because you're dealing with confidential things, you need to feel comfortable. You don't need to feel comfortable. In fact, you shouldn't feel comfortable all the time to do good work, but there's a sort of tendency to want to feel comfortable. And as a result, and also these are elite spaces in which you're supposed to look a certain way, behave a certain way, appear a certain way, be interested in certain things, often the kind of things that people who are already members of that inner circle are interested in. And so similarity attraction paradigm basically is a replication mechanism. What it means is those inside the inner circle will mostly attract others who look exactly like them. And this is why inner circles tend to be very homogeneous spaces. So in practical terms, why they continue to be predominantly male, white and older in the UK and why they tend to be very kind of close to other differences. So there is a structural kind of reason there, but it's also highly social, right? Because what they want, and <laughs> oftentimes, is a safe space, a safe space. Interesting. I just want to make sure I'm following you here. So essentially what you're saying is that the very senior leadership teams tend to be a close-knit circle that know each other really well and have to have or want to feel that they're in a safe space that they can trust each other. And also the decisions that they take, usually they don't focus on processes and systems and rules so much. They're working in often an uncharted space, which means they're going more on their gut feeling. I might have just added that. And No, no. So there's two things. I think the first part about how they act together and exist together, I think that is often the case. 
And I should say this is often the case. There's a tendency toward that, structurally speaking, in organizations, unless you create systems that work against that. Interesting. And this is the important thing as well, because it touches on the second point you made, which is about decision making. So what I mentioned about them being closed systems and about being these self-referential type of systems, which self-reinforce that kind of belonging, mm-hmm. also can lead to things like groupthink, for instance, which is why what you mentioned in terms of decision making is actually quite relevant. So they can make decisions based on a particular norm, a particular way of seeing This can be often according to whatever the most senior person feels is appropriate. So basically that group will attract people who are similar and then they're also going to, they're more samey in their decision making. Exactly. And if you are a parent with a new baby who wants to be in that circle or move towards that circle, that's going to be tough because you're definitely not going to be the same, especially if you don't hide the fact that you have a baby. Absolutely. Or I should say, I think it's slightly still different for men and women, partly due to general uh, real and perceived ideas of the influence of parenthood on men and women. So when senior female leaders are pregnant, there is an expectation that they will take the primary caretaking duties, whereas there is still an expectation that men will not. And this is what is called a motherhood penalty and a fatherhood bonus. Mm. But I think your summary is generally correct in the sense that for the most part, you get to the top by basically making work your life. There is a very high expectation in modern organizations of what we call identification, so over-identification. So this commitment that you have to work above all and the organization above all, coupled with presenteeism, coupled with structural focus on hours, for instance, in some industries, coupled with how billable hours, for instance, how you get ahead, coupled with the fact that those inner circles spend a lot of their time in dinners, in all-day events, on days away, etc., what you have is a structural place where if you just take parenting as something that will inevitably, let's say, make it impossible for you to stay beyond 4 p.m., you're absolutely right that that might structurally (laughs) make it impossible for you to be there. Not to mention that you will stand out. Mm. So you spend your life in in-depth conversations with these people, with yes. interviews, I presume, you, know, you shadow people. Yeah. You're basically an anthropologist, yes. aren't you? Of yeah. those business elites. Yeah. This is how I like to <laughs> <laughs> describe so, myself. So, but have you, and obviously not naming any names, but have you ever spotted someone who has broken that ring and who hasn't at the same time given their whole life to the business? Have you ever spotted a parent who has been able to be in the inner circle and at the same time enjoy time with their children? I think the only exception to that, and I think it's an important one, is individuals, I will not name names, but an individual who I know at Diageo. Now, Diageo is, as you may know, Diageo recently instituted or announced Full six months paid paternity, a parental leave, irregardless of if you're adopting or you're gay, you're straight, you're a mother, you're father, it doesn't matter. And this follows Aviva, who did something similar as well. This particular individual is, and partly because at the same time, diversity and inclusion is a core part of what Diageo is working, and I've worked a little bit with them on this, but they are committed to diversity and inclusion as not just a tag-on that HR does. 
this is important, but as a actual KPI strategically for the organization. They believe that it makes them better. So Ivan Menezes, who's their CEO, is himself extremely open to this and champions openly diversity. Their board of directors is incredibly diverse to the extent that I believe they even have a, a chief financial officer who's a woman as well. So not that kind of traditional Interesting, not HR, to say HR. Yeah. I know, HR roles. But the individual I have in mind is a mother who returned not three weeks later, not that there's anything wrong with that, but very much was able to, in that environment, live a more balanced life. She still works very hard. She's still incredibly impressive. But she is also, I think, somebody who is a parent without hiding that in any kind of a way, who took maternity leave that she didn't seem to publicly, we met at a public event, she didn't seem to publicly apologize for in any kind of a way. It was an extended leave. It was entirely seen as normal. And she sits on the board. Mm. I think what I'm learning from this is you need to choose really carefully (laughs) who you're applying which job that you're applying to um, next level both actually the job and the line manager that you're going to be yeah um, I mean absolutely and I think I always I mean there's two things there I've given talks I've written about this I'm sure people who are they hear this they can google afterwards but I think I would absolutely agree I think try doing your research beforehand as much as possible and by the way corporate lack of transparency around these issues does not help this But hopefully Aviva and Diageo and others who are kind of publicly pushing for this and making a splash are going to normalize this a bit more because it does make a difference where you work, partly because in the UK, things like maternity pay, parenting benefits are, let's say, in any meaningful way devolved to corporate employers. So employers. So unlike, for instance, my own country, Croatia or Sweden, it is not the case that you go on maternity leave or parental leave and you are covered by the state to the full extent of your pay. Hearing that on the one hand makes me very excited and makes me want to wish I had my children in Croatia. But then also it makes me feel a little bit disheartened and it goes through my head, well, where's the hope? What are we bothering with? But... I also think that when was this five-day working week introduced? I think 20, 30 years ago or something like that. And nowadays, we're all technically working five days a week and it's the normal thing. Mm. I really do think a different way of working could be normal in the future, whether that is more genuinely reduced working hours, four-day week, flexible working, whatever it really is. I do have hope. Mm. Maybe not based in rationality, but (laughs) in (laughs) in my desire, I want to be part of change. No, I think it it is important, but I think what is important to acknowledge is that, and this is why a lot of my, and we'll talk about strategies for progression individually, because I still think they're important, because the system will remain as it is for at least a little while, and we need to learn how to cope and navigate. We don't need to, but if we want to, and sometimes if we need to, because financially we need to, but I think it is also important to note that those structural changes are possible and they are a result of concerted effort. So give us some hope. Maya. Give us some hope. Yeah. There's is some... there hope? If not, let's finish no, the podcast no, no, now. No, 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 no. There is definitely hope. I think there's absolutely hope. I think the important thing to keep in mind when it comes to hope is I think if at all possible, individual actions should be taken and can be taken. I'll talk about those while keeping in mind at the same time, hopefully that there's reasons for those structural circumstances and they make it worse for us and we should acknowledge them and be angry about them. Um, Okay. So let's go to strategies first, then to give us some hope. 
I think, like I said, the hope in face of all these structural inequalities are several. First of all, there are still employers who do better, right? So if we mention a couple, there's plenty more. What they may require is different choices. So they may require lower salaries, for instance, or moving. But there are other employers out there. And I think that's pretty important. I think what's also important is there's been a lot of the entire push toward diversity and inclusion and following the Davies report, sort of women on boards. I think it's changed the public conversation. I don't think it's necessarily changed for the long term, the structural things yet. But I think it's at least brought to light the need for corporations to not be silent and not taking these issues seriously. So I think hopefully the environment is slightly changing so that things like who do we promote, how do we promote them, what are our working conditions, are we insisting on things that are entirely unreasonable, these kinds of questions are not just reasonable to ask, but must be answered. So I think the media attention is very, very helpful here and is hopefully leading to some of these kinds of changes. So so practically, yeah, but while we're waiting for and contributing to the change happening on a system level, practically, what are the top three things someone with a young child to do today yeah. in order to increase their chances of getting to those most senior roles where they then can change stuff? Yeah. So three things very quickly from my end that I always advise. First of all, a sponsorship. Second of all, networking. Third of all, politics. And I'll talk them through in brief. So let's start actually with networking. So what's really interesting about networking is, and I should acknowledge, is of course, young parents will have, or fresh parents will have particular constraints when it comes to networking, which is why it's useful to do a lot of that legwork ahead of time. But even once you're kind of back, networking is hugely, hugely important. And I'll explain, though, in what way it is. So in particular, the networks that are important is what Herminia Barra calls strategic networks. So particularly for women, because we have this kind of idea that if I just work hard, I'll just get promoted, which is, by the way, another myth of organizations. They tend to have networks uh, which are operational. So it's around the work that they're doing and what helps them get better work done. Also, we know through research that men's and women's networks are very different. So we women socialize outside of work and have friends outside of work and actually are at work are just professional. They're there to do the job. Yeah, exactly. With men, their social and their professional overlap. Partly because, you know, <laughs> talking about football, for instance, which was a major scandal, that's like something that can be a gel for connection inside the workplace. And there was an HBR piece about, sorry, Harvard research study published just today around that, around how that glues progression, those kind of social connections, particularly men with male bosses. Can I ask you then, yeah. what's your freshest thinking around how you might continue building your networks once the baby is here? So I think with me, like I said, my plan is I have the benefit of kind of co-parenting of doing that. I think I have kind of for myself been quite strategic, again, strategic networks in terms of these are the people who are going to be valuable to me, the places that are valuable to me for the kind of academic that I want to be. And I have prioritized those. And so I think the key thing, going back to this point about strategic networks, 
the key thing is to say for you to get ahead in whatever means is necessary for your kind of environment, for your industry, you need to find out where the people who are going to benefit you for the kind of ends that you want are, where are they hanging out, preferably where are they hanging out in a relaxed manner that they can get to know you as a human being, not just as a title holder, and then cultivate those relationships strategically. And Obviously, feel free to not mm. answer if you don't want to give away all your yeah. secrets. But what do you do? Do you go to conferences? Do you ask lots of people for coffee? What do you do practically? Well, that's kind of interesting as well. Like Again, the book I was mentioning by Scarlett and Elizabeth Kellen is interesting for that. But what I do specifically is... I actually genuinely hate networking. I'm an introvert. And I think it's also very awkward to me to be strategic, quote unquote, in a blatant way about like, I want something from you. I hate the idea of functionality. So how I've tried to make it work is I attend certain number of events. So for instance, I'll give you an example. I really, really appreciate the Drucker Forum, the Peter Drucker Forum that happens every year in Vienna. And so what I've done, traditionally speaking, because I don't like just reaching out randomly to people, is I've used Twitter and my public kind of reflections to participate in public conversations and then naturally kind of say, oh, we should catch up and sit down in breaks. And that feels to me a lot more organic. Mm. And then it's about maintaining kind of those conversations. Again, this is specifically something that might work for me, but I think the key kind of bigger point is we are all constrained by time and as parents, even more than that. So it's a case of prioritizing and saying, who are the key people? And I think secondly, on what basis can I relate to them that they would find valuable? And that doesn't necessarily need to be valuable on a sort of utilitarian basis. It can mean valuable on a somebody finally is not schmoozing to me, but is actually talking real. Yeah, I agree. I don't lo like networking either. I uh, <laughs> I'm also an introvert and I've just started to trying to focus on having meaningful conversations yeah. and creating a connections. And actually then it means I enjoy it mm. and it doesn't become functional as you call it. Absolutely. Okay. From that, it links very neatly to sponsorship. Tell me what it is and how to get one. What sponsorship is, is basically, let's say I know you and because we've spent some time together, I now am more likely to appreciate you as a human being, but to also say, well, I'm brilliant. So Verena must be brilliant too. Right. And so my advocacy of you, and this is a sociological fact, my advocacy of you becomes easier because you are now a reflection of me. Interesting. So you see yourself in me and therefore, because you think I'm similar to you, you're more likely to recommend me to someone. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. It's another second order consequence of similarity attraction paradigm. So when it comes to sponsorship, basically what sponsorship is, is I become an informal advocate for you. So rather than saying, oh, Verena, come to me, we'll have a session once a month, we'll discuss what you need to do, what you need to improve, and you'll come to me next month. I say, let's talk about what your goals are. Let's talk about your priorities. Let's talk about who are those networks that you got to access, how I can help you there. And then I'm going to send five emails to these guys saying, Verena is brilliant. You need to make time to see her. And by the way, while you're on leave, I'm also going to call you and say, by the way, this is coming down the line. Maybe take five minutes to just shoot a quick email saying, heads up, I really want to do this. Can we have a conversation when I come back? So it's about somebody taking an active interest in you, in your path, what you want to do, and then saying from that point of you and your interest, what can I do mm. to facilitate that? Not guarantee it, but facilitate it. So if you don't have anyone like this hanging already is there something you can do or is it just a case of luck? 
Unfortunately, for many people, it is luck. And like I said, ideally speaking, so let's say you get senior enough that you can kind of influence these systems. The first thing you can do is organize for this to be formalized in your organization. This would be a very good paying it forward activity for you. But if you're not that person, if you didn't get lucky, I think, again, it goes back to networking. And it also goes back to reaching out through your own networks and your own squad. And I would, I'll talk often about the need to have your own squad and trying to identify somebody who is willing to play that role for you. Even though there is some research that suggests that, for instance, women helping other women is often penalized, especially when they're promoted. There is a lot of kind of bias that's associated, not, not bias, but a lot of stigma that's associated by others. At the same time, we have other research by Brown and Kellen and others that shows that actually women are very good at helping each other, right? And so if it's a case of putting you in touch with somebody who doesn't work for them, but it might be in your industry, building up those networks and building them up in a way that is very much if all of us get ahead, all of us benefit rather than a kind of competitive one-to-one -one kind of thing. I think that is a good way of doing it. So again, networking helps support sponsorship and sponsorship then helps you get better networks. Mm. So these things are kind of tied. And there is some research as well, isn't there, that actually if you sponsor someone, that is beneficial for your career. So if you don't have a sponsor, you might as well be a sponsor to someone else because actually yeah. it's going to be positively. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. It is positively associated. It's also, like I said, it's good for your ego because you, if they've succeeded, you've succeeded too, because that way we self-identify, but it is also actually very, very good for you as well. So I would say number two, definitely sponsorship worthwhile thinking about. And it might be one way to focus your networking is, for instance, to focus it around, I need to get somebody who can play that sponsorship role for me. So that's a way of connecting the two. Brilliant. And what was the third one? It was politics. Now, this is an interesting one. I love, love, love teaching this. I teach to my MBAs. And it's, it's kind of funny because it's almost offensive to some people to talk about organizations as political domains. So politics and office politics tends to have a very kind of negative view, partly because it offends this idea that we have that organizations are meritocratic, which by the way, they're not. But it's still kind of very stigmatized. And I think this is particularly works against women and particularly works against, again, parents with young children who have structural constraints to them. So what do I mean about making politics work for you? I think the first thing I would recommend to anybody who's kind of thinking about doing this is go check out the work of Jeffrey Pfeffer. So Jeffrey has been teaching for like Young's years at Stanford, a course called Path to Power. And he is very much a pragmatist and I'm very much a pragmatist, which is, as we've said, even though there's all these structural constraints and you might feel like, oh God, what do I do? There's always some capacity. The capacity just means getting your hands dirty a bit and being smart about how you get your hands dirty, which is why politics is kind of there. So how do you make politics work for you? I think the first recognition you have to make is that organizations are not just their organograms right? So we have a traditional kind of view of power as being concentrated at the top and power is being concentrated at the level of basically formalized power, right? So you have a title, therefore you have power. But actually power is more a reflection of, it has to do with rarity and then uncertainty. So rare access to certain resources or knowledge or people. And uncertainty in terms of the capability to then use that knowledge, resources, or people toward managing uncertainty for the organization. 
I for can you give an example. So, for instance, one group of people who are often overlooked are PAs. They're absolutely overlooked. They're often socially stigmatized. They're seen as not necessarily important. I always say to my students, number one, you are always nice to PAs. PAs will say personal assistants or executive assistants. And that's not just because it's good manners and you should be, but because they will have privileged information that will be incredibly rare and that will be disproportionate to their formal position in organizations. So they will know, for instance, what is the executive team worried about? They will know what's on the horizon next. They will know how does this person prefer to receive information or prefer to be contacted in the initial stage. So they will also know what are the dynamics right now? What do they have that's going on? Who are they looking for? Are there new openings? So people like that are incredibly valuable. So if you can, for instance, think about people like that, who, for instance, would be useful to you if you wanted to move up in a particular way in your organization, cultivating those relationships makes sense. Part of the way in which you do that might be reciprocity. So if you help them, they help you. This is very common kind of sociological insight. We tend to be quid pro quo with people. Again, this sounds very callous. It sounds very calculating. It doesn't have to be. It can, in fact, be a part of that squad building I was partly mentioning earlier, which can be safe spaces for yourself as well, where you feel like it's almost like a parallel organization you're building of people who can be helpful to each other, can work in a different template, partly different from the norm of that organization, partly can help each other survive that template. So for instance, that might also include other new parents. So people who appreciate the situation you're in, so you can help each other out as well. But at the same time, you can use your collective powers toward saying, for instance, okay, what's on the horizon that you can pitch as a new project or a new solution using basically what you have. So the idea there is that you want to be doing a sort of almost a diagnostic of your organization in terms of who has what power, when, about what. And then you want to do the same about how you want to use your power. So toward what do you wish to progress? Why do you want to progress? In what way do you want to progress? Is it a horizontal progression? Is it an upwards progression? What would work best? Then you collect your squad. Then that squad helps you get the lay of the land and the timings and the convincing, helps you pitch it the right way, and then hopefully tells you the right time to pounce. And this, by the way, is why they're all interrelated. This is why if you have the right sponsor who is in those circles as well, they might be able to tell you and give you that heads up to say, by the way, this is coming down the line. So remember when we talked about that idea that you had that you want to pitch, maybe when you come back from maternity or your parental leave, whatever, now is the right time, right? So hit it. But before that, you need to do some work. So I think the key takeaway for me is there is hope on the horizon. There are things we should do. I just think we need to be very, very realistic about what those are. And in particular, we need to give up this idea that hard work will get us there. Mm, absolutely. And I'm seeing that so often, very often as a parent, you lose a bit of confidence on maternity, share parental or adoption leave. Mm. You then come back and you want to prove yourself again and you work three times as hard. Mm. And that just doesn't work. We have no. to be disciplined to spend time around the water cooler yeah. and fo focus ourselves on that work that you've done and not feel bad about it. Because no. if you're doing it for a purpose and having spoken to so many amazing women through this podcast, the topic of purpose comes through again mm. and again. It just, if you know why you're doing it, yeah. 
you really you're freed from those expectations about why you shouldn't be doing it. I recently gave a, a talk about that to the City Women's Network and I said one of my questions exactly is this, why are you politicking? Why are you doing all this work? Why are you trying to get ahead? For me at least, it's about having a better life on my own terms. So if I can get there, that's why I want to be doing that. I mean, that might involve some work on your kind of own identity and how you see yourself. It might mean leaving some things behind or shifting some things. Hermenia Barra's Working Identity book is brilliant for that to facilitate that. But I think more than that, it also means just accepting the fact that it's absolutely okay for you to want better. I think, again, there's this kind of social stigma around the idea that perhaps as women, but also as young parents or young in the sense of fresh parents, you know, you should come back and you should be grateful and you should shut up and you should just work hard. And, you know, you shouldn't want more than that because why would you want more than that? And it's so, <laughs> it's so punitive and it's so absolutely ridiculous. Why would you not want to have a better life for yourself or for your children? Why would you not want to reach your potential? Why do you have to minimize constantly your demands or make yourself less or make yourself not too demanding or equally not too angry? Mm. It seems really silly and I think it's very punitive. So I absolutely think embrace it. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to be me here being very open about using politics to get ahead. But just do it. Because I think if it improves your life, it's absolutely worth it. Much, much more than if you just kind of plow away and make yourself sick. Absolutely. And actually, it's, we've just talked about how to get to the most senior jobs. But actually, if you want the mm. best ever flexible working arrangement, if you want to call it flexible working, or if mm. you want to work only three days a week, it's the exact same things. Mm influencing through that politics, yeah. using sponsor, having the right networks. That is all part of it. So yeah, you should definitely never apologize for thinking about, about it that way. And I also think, I feel very strongly that there are certain members of our society that they have a leg up automatically because they're Absolutely. part of that inner, they are similar to the inner circle. And quite often those are young white males from elite education yeah, institutions yeah. who are not working class. And if you don't fall into that category, then even just from a social justice perspective, I do really think you should be doing that um, personal view. Anyways, this has been extremely thought-provoking and inspiring as always. Is there anything else that you wanted to say to the listeners? I think if I could finish with three small things that if I could personally advise, I would. I think first of all, like I said, find your squad. I really find your squad. You don't need to call it the resistance, which is my <laughs> informal <laughs> kind of a name for mine. But find your squad, find your people. Yes, it's important that you network with those seniors. Yes, it's important that you get used to not liking everybody you network with to break into some of those circles if that's what you want. But find your your space, the people who support you, a variety of people who support you that you can reach out to, that you can be honest about and that they can also access, give you a different point of view, give you access to other opportunities. And that's really, really, really important. Secondly, I think it's really pays to always have a backup plan. Your squad is going to be helpful also for things like keeping you abreast of other opportunities. Too often, because of the way modern organizations work, basically we are structurally forced to be these overcommitted individuals who are so enthusiastic about our organizations and our work that it's almost kind of impossible for us to leave. We buy in so much. And at the same time, organizations today don't necessarily follow that up with 
structural support, that means that you're not going to get fired or let go or if things change. So I think having that backup plan is super, 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 super important. Your networks will allow you to have that backup plan. Things like having a pot of money that is your own will. Again, these are kind of old feminist tropes. As Virginia Woolf said, you need a room of your own, but she also said you need a pension. And this is something that you people don't know. Yeah. So financial, you know, a pot of side, something that allows you to walk away if you can at all. And I know this will not be the case for everybody, but if you can at all do that, squirrel that away, keep those networks and have an exit plan that will not ruin you. I think that's really important. And Christine Armstrong talks about that as well. And the final one has to do with something that I want to mention one final book that I, I love. It's Shani Orgad, and it's called Heading Home, Motherhood, Work, and the Failed Promise of Equality. And she's an academic associate professor like I am at LSC. And she interviewed a number of stay-at-home moms who were professionally very successful before moving to kind of stay-at-home mom status, let's call it that, in London. Very interesting book. But one of the things that she talks about, which I just want to mention, is anger. So we mentioned at the beginning, you know, we kind of said, oh God, is there any kind of silver lining here? You know what I mean? Like these structural constraints are so great. It could just make you feel so angry. And what's really interesting about her books is how tempered these women were. They were extremely disappointed oftentimes with, not necessarily with their own choices, but partly with, you know, the way things worked out at home in terms of the division of labor, the way that eventually they didn't go back, even though they wanted to. But they felt like they couldn't express that anger. They felt like they couldn't express their disappointment. They felt like they had to be these women who said, but it's okay. I'll just work harder. It will be fine. No need to complain. And this is again linked to that squad as a safe space for you to yell in the void. But I would say this kind of tapering of the emotional kind of weight and the need to be legitimately angry about some of these things if I could advise anything on a personal level is for that not to be something that holds us back. We have the right as parents, as people, irregardless of our circumstances, to be angry about some of the ways in which we are structurally constrained without necessarily this resulting in us needing to personally self-correct. This idea that personal strategies will just make up for all these structural inequalities is an absurd one. And yet, we're meant to constantly, particularly as women, feel like we can't complain. And so I would hope, either through that squad or some kind of other space, that women can just embrace and young parents can just embrace the fact that sometimes they're going to be tired, they're going to be pissed, they're going to be annoyed, they're going to be angry, and they're going to be entirely legitimate in doing that. So just let it go. Which is, incidentally, my four years old favorite song at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> we won't sing. So how, um, if people want to find out more about your work and you, or may want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? You're obviously just about to go on maternity leave, so I presume you're going to be out of well, I don't bit. know. I, I probably, I will want my brain at least to be connected in some way to my work. I'm infinitely Googleable, as I say to my students. So if you just search for me, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Koritza, D-R-K-O-R-I-C-A. I know how to spell my name. 
And Twitter is probably the best, but also LinkedIn. And I'm really, really genuinely happy always to give a leg up if I can or to share information. My talks are generally on Medium so they can be found in detail. And we'll be sharing some of the references from today as well in case people want to do it. But please, you know, if I can help by any advice, please reach out. Always happy to talk. Thank you so much, Maya. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening today. If you enjoyed the conversation with Maya, you are in for a treat. Next week, we have a special second part of this conversation, which we actually recorded last week, where Maya, now with baby Lou in her arms, shares with me how the things that she's shared with us earlier apply in this coronavirus period, especially where we can't just walk across to the water cooler and when we have to have those networks those relationships online i think you'll really enjoy that conversation if you've enjoyed the conversation today if you are looking to join a network of like-minded ambitious individuals who are parents across sectors then do register interest on www.leadersplus.org.uk forward slash register interest right now and also i really want to spread this message that it is absolutely okay to love your ambitious careers and love your children at the same time but I need your help to achieve this my dream is I would love to make a difference to a thousand listeners by September at the moment we are on about 500 to 800 per episode so if this podcast has helped you in any way please take a moment to share it with five of your friends leave a review and most importantly hit the subscribe button right now And of course, like with any podcast, five stars reviews really help with the visibility. So thank you so much to everyone who's done that. Until next time, have a wonderful week.